Nathan here. Just wanted to let you know to listen through the credits for a Marvel-style stinger and a special announcement. Now, on with the show. Live from Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, Episode 6, Nick Hayden versus King Kong Escapes. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the caped curator of the Film Vault, Nathan Marchand. But today I am joined by another returning guest, another golden ticket holder here on Monster Island, the tourist, my friend and fellow writer. Hello, I am Nick Hayden. Welcome back, Nick. Yes, it was. Jimmy brought me in. We had to parachute out of his plane on the way here. Oh, really? Yeah, he took me the whole like nine yards to get here the cool way. Hot dang. Jimmy, does he not do that? Do you not do that normally? Really? How come you didn't do that with me? I mean, come on, man. Oh, I'm not cool enough for this? I see how this works. So yeah, we got along pretty well. Yeah, so. he's just, he's trying to relive his glory days from you know from the war in space. Yeah, he was he was kind of limping afterwards. He didn't let me. Well, I shouldn't talk about it. Uh, 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 Jimmy, calm down. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make you have a flashback to the war in space. It's gonna be okay. It's okay, Dan. It's okay. We good? We good? All right. <laughs> All right. Good. Sometimes he has spells. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we are not here to talk about poor Jimmy, as cool as that would be, because he's got plenty of war stories, I'm sure. But we are here to talk about what is actually a first in many regards on this show. We are here to talk about King Kong Escapes, which is not the first Japanese film I've covered on this show, but this is the first Ashura Honda movie that we have talked about on this show. And I'm really excited about that, because... As you remember, Nick, I did an independent study on Ashiro Honda back when I was in grad school, and that was tremendous fun. I did not cover this film, but I covered a lot of his other films, and a lot of that material will then get used in some later episodes. Nice. Good. And then after we talk about this interesting movie... (laughs) Interesting, yes. (laughs) Yes. We, our toku topic for today will be... This will be an interesting one, I think. We will be talking about a topic that I find fascinating, which will be the parallels between Toho's Japanese and American co-productions and Japan-America relations. But before we can do any of that fun stuff, Mm -hmm. I have to fulfill my contractual obligations and read Jimmy's entertaining info dump to get everyone caught up on this movie. If by some act of God you're listening to a podcast about a movie you haven't seen. I've done it. So have I. But anyway, <laughs> moving on. King Kong is a comical and protective force of nature. However, being a giant gorilla, he displays some anthropomorphisms like wiping his nose. He takes a liking to Susan Watson and defends her from Gorosaurus and Mechanicong. He is later hypnotized by Doctor Who to dig for Element X. The ferocious Gorosaurus is a dinosaur living on Mondo Island who attacks Kong because he wants to eat Susan, but is killed by the big ape. 
A presumably hungry giant sea serpent swims toward the explorer to attack the crew, but is defeated by Kong. Mechanicong is an obedient robot modeled after King Kong by Doctor Who to dig for Element X and is later used to attempt to capture or kill Kong. The stoic and intelligent UN soldier Commander Carl Nelson leads an expedition to the South Seas to find oil and to study Kong on Mondo Island. After being captured by Doctor Who, he seeks to foil the mad scientist's schemes. His clever and heroic second-in-command, Lieutenant Commander Jiro Nomura, assists with these missions while trying to save Susan from henchmen and monsters throughout the film. Lieutenant Susan Watson is the kind and sympathetic go-go boot-wearing nurse who tries to keep the Explorer crew healthy. After finding Kong, she uses his infatuation with her to calm him down or direct his actions. The greedy and maniacal Doctor Who is a caped scientist mining the powerful Element X to sell to any governments willing to pay. Madame Piranha, a mysterious and cunning secret agent, finances Doctor Who's mining operation on her government's behalf, but later betrays him when he threatens innocent lives by sending Mechanicong to Tokyo. The human and monster plotlines are unified. The characters' actions are always connected to the kaiju, whether that be finding, controlling, or eluding them. While Mechanicong is his tool, Doctor Who is the problem. He hypnotizes Kong to dig for Element X, but the control devices are destroyed by radiation. Later, Kong breaks out of his cage, which distracts him and his henchmen long enough to let the protagonists escape. Doctor Who sends Mechanicong to chase Kong, but the robot is too slow to catch him. He sends Mechanicong to recapture Kong in Tokyo using a flashing light to mesmerize the big ape, but Nomura shoots it with a rifle. The robot fights Kong until he grabs Susan and climbs Tokyo Tower, where Doctor Who speaks through the machine and threatens to drop the woman. The problem is solved by King Kong with help from the protagonist. Kong pursues Mechanicong up Tokyo Tower, forcing the machine to drop Susan, whom he catches and puts on the tower. He battles Mechanicong at the top of the building until Madame Piranha destroys the robot's controls on Doctor Who's ship, after which the robot loses power and falls to its destruction. At daybreak, the protagonists lead Kong to Doctor Who's ship, and the ape pummels it, killing all aboard. The script by Takeshi Kimura, under the name Kaoru Mabuchi and William J. Keenan, is a simple and straightforward story that fuses elements of the kaiju, super spy, and sci-fi adventure genres. The pacing is brisk, leaving the characters underdeveloped. The special effects were directed by the legendary Eiji Tsuburaya, who was excited to work on another Kong film after 1962's King Kong vs. Godzilla. He had loved King Kong since seeing the original 1933 film as a child, and his enthusiasm shines through. The film features his trademark techniques including soupmation, miniatures, rotoscoping, animation, and puppets. The Kong suit, which was covered with dog fur, is a marginal improvement over the previous one with its more articulate and expressive face, but it still looks bad when wet. The Gorosaurus and Mechanicong suits look fantastic by comparison. Since the monsters are smaller, the models are larger and more detailed than in most kaiju films. The rotoscoping does an effective job of creating the illusion that the characters are interacting with Kong and Mechanicong. The Tokyo Tower model the suit actors climb is an incredible set that painstakingly replicates the building. This is a light film, although its silliness comes from the material and not the acting, which creates some tonal unevenness with the serious performances and often violent images. There is a moderate amount of gravity since Doctor Who is presented as a serious threat despite his outlandish plan. With an island of monsters, a powerful element, and giant robots, this is a sci-fi fantasy story.
As a kaiju film, it isn't experimental because it recycles many elements from Toho's growing library of monster movies. However, it is experimental as a Kong film because it was the most science fictional story, complete with a mecha, to feature the big ape. The film reinforces the style of 1933's King Kong with its island of dinosaurs, greedy capitalists, human monster romance, and tower climbing. It also reinforces the styles of King Kong vs. Godzilla with its lighter tone and comical Kong, and the King Kong show with its setting, characters, and plot. However, it does expand style in one regard. Susan is a sympathetic love interest for Kong, a trope that will be repeated in subsequent films. The film was commissioned by Rankin Bass Productions as a loose adaptation of their popular King Kong show animated series, which was produced through Toho's rival studio, Toei. To that end, it was meant to be an entertaining romp for children, which was quickly becoming the primary audience for kaiju films. It also commemorated Toho's 35th anniversary. The film had a budget of 170 million yen, or $472,000, but Japanese box office numbers are unavailable. It didn't crack Kinema Junpo's list of top-grossing films for the year when released July 22, 1967, the year of the kaiju since every major studio released a kaiju film then. It was released by Universal June 19, 1968 in the United States, where it grossed $2.18 million. While it received mixed reviews from critics, it has gained a positive following in the kaiju fandom. It currently holds a 5.6 with 1,962 ratings on IMDb. Universal's dub version features Rhodes Reason re-recording his own dialogue and Paul Frees voicing Doctor Who and most of the other male characters. Linda Jo Miller didn't dub herself because she was only a model and not a member of the Screen Actors Guild. Eight minutes of footage was trimmed from the film, although two scenes removed from the Japanese cut, an introductory scene for Susan and a longer conversation between Nelson and Madame Piranha were reinserted. Mechanicong was called Robot Kong, and Madame Piranha's name was changed to Madame X. There are several forces at play. Doctor Who discovers the largest deposit of Element X on Earth, which he reveals only to potential buyers. Madame Piranha is an agent of an unspecified communist country that seeks to use Element X to build its own nuclear arsenal, so she makes a deal with him, only to betray him later when he endangers innocent lives. There is a brief culture clash between the protagonist and the crazy old hermit on Mondo Island since only Nelson can understand him. Civilization clashes with nature when Doctor Who unsuccessfully tries to mine Element X with Mechanicong and when he tries to enslave Kong. This also happens when the protagonists are attacked by the monsters on Mondo Island. While the film seems devoid of substance, it does have several themes. Doctor Who's arrogance, connivance, and greed eventually get him and his henchmen killed. Madame Piranha foregoes her mission to protect innocent people and free the protagonist. But she also exemplifies self-sacrifice when she dies destroying Mechanicong's controls. Susan is sympathetic toward Kong, which tames the savage beast. He, in turn, is willing to defend her out of his affection for her. The film ends with Nelson saying Kong has, quote, had enough of what we call civilization, implying the big ape doesn't want to deal with humanity's problems, which aren't present in nature. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. It's Toku Talk time. Now that we've gotten that out of the way. Good work. And, yes. And through the magic of editing, we have slipped away and watched this movie in the island's screening room. It's a nice screening room. Yes. Yes. yes I think so as well. So, Nick. Yes. Fresh out of the screening room. Yes. What are your thoughts on this movie? 
It was a fun movie, actually. I like. I didn't really know what I was getting into. It's ridiculous plot-wise, but like it's weird because it's filmed like really nice and it has this kind of good soundtrack and everyone's very serious. Except there's also Mechanical Ape and <laughs> and Doctor Who. <laughs> Yes, that doctor. Not that doctor. Yeah, we said, what the heck, Jimmy? It's not that Doctor <laughs> Who. Although there are some very weird parallels between the British Doctor, not yes. Doctor Who, but the British Doctor and Doctor Who in this. But we'll get to that yeah, later. But, so it's a, it's just an interesting combination, but like it moves fast. It's you know it's just there to be fun. I was enjoying it. We were it was pretty lighthearted, so we're making you know we're making some comments and jokes as we're going. <laughs> it's, it's a it's a weirdly riffable movie, but, yeah, but like I riff because I love. Yeah, it's that sort of movie. It's not like you're like, oh, I can't get through this. It's like, oh, this is fun, but also kind of ridiculous. So, <laughs> which is to be expected, honestly. <laughs> but it was like. Oh, you know, sometimes you're like, why are, why are they hypnotizing Kong? Why did they just hypnotize someone else to do their work? <laughs> this is not a tight script at all. But, like, simultaneously, like, you know, Kong's meeting Susan, and you've got this nice theme that comes yes, back. And it's like, yes. like, it really works. A lot of the books and such that I was reading commented on that scene, actually saying that they thought it was the best scene in the entire movie. It was very effective. And, and I mean, I have not watched much Honda but like you get to, he knows what he's doing. Oh like, yeah, it, it's, it's a. I mean, cinematography wise, it's worth much more. In fact, actually, that it's interesting you bring that up because one of the one of the things I learned about this film is this was actually the last time Honda worked with his uh, most major cinematographer. Okay. Yeah, his cinematographer's name was Hajime Koizumi. Unfortunately, after this, the they stopped working together. The official reason is because Toho wanted to give other cameramen. A chance to work with Honda, but some people theorize that it was because Honda was disappointed with the guy's most recent work. Mm. No, I mean, yeah, choose some, your own adventure on that there one. There's some nice shots when they're leaving. Kong's just sitting in front of the island in the water. Yes, I mean, there's it's. I mean, it's not as iconic, obviously, as the first King Kong. No, and it's and it's very it's not, different. And most I mean, of it's not trying to be that. I mean, it has that same sort of like breakneck like pace, but it's not as frantic or as even quite as brutal as the original king kong no although one of the best descriptions i heard of this movie was that it was silly and savage yeah, yeah because sometimes you like just kill people and I'm like oh hi i'm gonna shoot you three times you hermit <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. doctor who is very fond of that pistol and he he whips it out several times okay and... let's let's talk about doctor who okay <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> so he inspired my wardrobe today. You know, that's yeah. why I am wearing, I'm sporting this cape. It's a, it's a nice cape. So is that, Jimmy, is that part of the budget for Nathan or? It's not on the budget. It's coming out of my paycheck. I am going to have words with the Monster Island board of directors because this was not a cheap cape. You, you can't work under these conditions. <sighs> yeah. You're, you're telling me. So yeah, I was actually hoping that I could get my own cape, but. I'll see what I can so, do. So, okay, so Doctor Who, like, <laughs> so, like, perfectly, ridiculously mad scientist-like. Like, he's very <laughs> smug. He has perfect hair. He makes it, he decides the best way to mine this unobtainium. <laughs> Element X, which they never really explain what the stuff does. There is some inference that it's like plutonium because... Madame Piranha says that her country is going to use it. No, uh, Doctor Who says your country tells 
Madame Piranha, your country is going to use it to build a nuclear arsenal. Yeah. So I guess it's plutonium, but so it's, it's only it's one small step above unobtainium. Which if if you've seen Avatar, you know what I'm talking about. And I still have a huge beef with the unobtainium. And like he he decided the best way to mine this is to make a giant mechanical version of King Kong, which to me is not the most cost effective way of doing things, but. I I'm not a mad scientist, so I don't know. Yeah, oh, well, that's the thing. By the way, the the actor's name is Hideo Amamoto, and I think he honestly might be my favorite actor in this whole thing, oh, which is saying great. a lot. He's 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 so much fun. Yeah, and that's saying a lot because this is a movie with the great Akira Takarada. That's like I said, that is saying a lot. This guy is wonderful. He he makes it's so much fun. I mean, he just. Every scene he's in, he's like, you're just, it's just fun. I yeah. Mean, and, and, he, and Doctor Who could do everything. I mean, he's a, he's a conniving businessman. So he's kind of our Carl Denham in this. Because he, he try, the, he's the one who exploits Kong or he tries the, to exploit Kong. He's the international Judas. Yes. <laughs> you were, yeah. I love all the poetic terms that are used to describe him by the, by the crazy old hermit yep. when he dies. And, and then by, the Captain Nelson. Oh, Commander yeah. Nelson. Yeah. <laughs> was like he's the international Judas. He was an oriental skeleton with eye, with burning eyes uh, with the burning eyes of the devil and uh and a gutter rat. <laughs> I mean, the movie would have been much less without Doctor Who being but he wasn't he wasn't necessarily played over the top. He just had this like smug mad scientist presence. I know, which was, just, which was just a lot of it, it. It was a good thing. Well, and the the fact of the matter is, as the movie progresses, we start to realize just how broad of a skill set he has. He has ninja skills. Yeah, yeah, he knows martial arts. He's good with guns. He's an inventor. He can hypnotize. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, his, and he's a chess master. He's not particularly good about understanding how radiation affects technology. Yeah, that but, seems to be his hubris. Yeah, he, he doesn't. He he doesn't understand the concept of the uh, of radiation affecting technology because he keeps sending things with technology into the cave where element x is and they all keep well, like, shorting out on him it's so like, like did you learn nothing from the robot like mecha mecha kong mechanicon like, yeah mechanicon he's like hey figure out what went wrong apparently they never bothered with that, <laughs> yeah because uh, then he he puts devices in kong's ears that are supposed to allow him to control Kong, and they short out oh, in five minutes. And he must be a chess master because he made sure they captured those three guys before he even needed them. <laughs> yeah, he, he was saying, hey, go capture them. They'll help us control Kong. Oh, wait, I can hypnotize Kong. Yeah. So I'm like, wait a minute, then why are you capturing the protagonist? Yeah, but then after that, it's like, ah, I anticipated that by technology. <laughs> so it's like, I'm just picturing him. Yep. It's like, that wasn't a mistake. I anticipated that my technology would short out. It's, and now I have you. It just, and so, yeah, so we have robots, we have hyp hypnosis, we have all, you know, all kinds of yeah. cool things. And and honestly, though she's never named Man Piranha, was, was a, honestly probably the most nuanced character we had. Yeah, and uh, played by the great Mie Hama, who was fresh off of being a Bond girl okay. at this time. There's some interesting connections. I mean, this is this movie has a lot of super spy elements yes. in it. Yeah. And the, what I find interesting is you have Mie Hama, who was in You Only Live Twice, the Bond movie from that year with mm -hmm. Sean Connery, where he goes to Japan. Okay. And what's interesting is... In the same movie, another Bond girl was played by Akiko Wakabayashi, who was in a Godzilla movie just a few years before this, 
And both of them were in King Kong versus Godzilla. Nice. And in fact, in King Kong versus Godzilla, it was Miehama who got picked up by Kong when he climbed a building. Okay. So here she is in another King Kong movie, but she's not the love interest. No. It's funny how everything works Connected. together here. It, it's great. But yeah, you're right. She is the most nuanced character. It, she She's the only one that really grows in any real way. Yeah. There's a massive amount of underdeveloped characters but, but in the this. Thing but... is, like, I think the best way to approach this film is really as almost like a... It's a live-action cartoon. Yeah, live-action cartoon, some sort of like just pulpy sitcom. Not, <laughs> not, not, not a sitcom, I didn't mean that. A pulpy comic book. Yeah. Like a, a like a dime novel. Yeah. That sort of stuff. And yeah, you, you really have to go into this and knowing that the movie operates on cartoon logic. I mean, it's based on a cartoon series mm -hmm. with a really catchy theme song. <laughs> but yes. you have to go into it with that or else you're going to be nitpicking. We were doing that already because we were sitting there thinking, Doctor Who's first plan to get Element X is to build a giant robot gorilla. <laughs> that, and then and that doesn't work, so I'll get the real gorilla, the real giant gorilla. And so, honestly, if the idea that a scientist makes a giant robot gorilla to get a special element sounds interesting to you, you're in the right mode. Yeah. If you suddenly that sounds dumb, probably shouldn't watch the movie. Yeah. But then you'll just not enjoy it like it was meant to be enjoyed. Yeah. Well, and then because you start thinking to yourself, look at all this other tech he has. He has hypnotism technology that can hypnotize giant monsters. Why not turn that on the protagonist? Why not sell that? He, he just, <laughs> he really enjoys just his outlandish way of doing things. And again, I think if you take it in the right tone, it's a very enjoyable movie. As long as you realize it's just kind of a fun adventure. And again, it has some, it has some of those elements, kind of dime novel sort of stuff. You know, you the bad guy's really bad, and the good guy's really bad, and someone repents in the middle. You mean the, the good guy's really good? Did I say that? Yes. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> modern films, and the good guy's really bad. Um, yeah, Jimmy, I, got, I riffed him before you did in your notes. <laughs> but, you know, it's very, you know, Kind of that dime novel, good, good, bad, bad. Someone redeems themselves. Everyone lives happily ever after. The bad guy gets their just desserts. And it's satisfying that way. I mean, when Kong just beats up the boat at the end, you're like, cool. <laughs> and then you see Doctor Who just like bleeding from the mouth. Like, oh, yeah. that's what I needed. But. Rated G for the kids. I can't believe that. Like this, so much this, is, this actually has an MPA rating and it's G. I don't thinking Most this is the fine. nastiest G rated movie I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> you got people bleeding, a dinosaur getting its jaw broken, except this time it just foams at the mouth because Subaraya said no blood with the monster fights because we can't show that to the kids. But Honda's like, yeah, but I'm going to have all the people bleeding all yep. the time. But <laughs> I, I, it was a different time. It was. <laughs> it was a very different time. So Kong was interesting because I'd only ever seen the original Kong last time I was here. Mm -hmm. And you've seen the, the Peter Jackson. The Peter remake. Jackson, but I'm, yeah. I'm kind of going chronologically here. Mm -hmm. Again, we complain, not complain, we came to the conclusion for the original Kong that he was very bestial. It was hard to see him as protagonist. This one I could see as protagonist. Mm -hmm. He had that more of that anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphisms. Thank you. <laughs> Use your it. words. I know not how. <laughs> Now, his face was a little, took me a while to get used to. It's a little funky. Like, I like his eyes most scenes, and other times I'm like, you look a little stoned or something. <laughs> well, if you'd seen King Kong versus Godzilla, Th that would make sense because he gets drunk in that one. But it's funny. You pointed something out that I can't believe I never made this connection. 
the I had mentioned to you that this came about because of Rankin Bass, and yeah. you said Kong looks like the Bumble he does. <laughs> from the, Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. The, like, how did I never think of this? The first shot of him in his cave, like his mouth's kind of open. You have his teeth, and I'm like, it looks just like the Bumble. <laughs> Later on, I don't think that as much. But the first scene of him sitting kind of slumped in this cave felt very Rudolph. Very Rudolph, yes. So. <laughs> Bumbles, bounce. <laughs> Man, you can Cornelius down in, in the North Pole with Doctor Who would have been awesome. Yeah, that was the other thing. I was just like, I have now seen everything. King Kong is in the North Pole. I bet Doctor Who killed Santa to get to get that base. What do you think Weapon X or Weapon X? That's a whole different issue. <laughs> Element X is is just the corpse of Santa. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> that's dark. <laughs> Ray G, everyone. <laughs> Ray G. Well, anyway, I I really enjoyed the movie. Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting is when I I pre-screened this before you came over, and I wrote down a bunch of times where. You know, having seen the original movie, you probably noticed a lot of these as well. There's a fair amount of homages yes. to the original film in this. Several of them that I wrote down is you know the fight with Gorosaurus, yes. the dinosaur, who looks infinitely better than that Kong suit. Yeah, you, just, you need a good dinosaur fight. <laughs> yeah, and so it's an homage to the T-Rex fight. Yep. Has some similar choreography, but what's also interesting is Kong finds Susan the love interest in this one, who's blonde, I might add. He yes. took a little break with a brunette with Mie Hama in King Kong versus Godzilla, but now he's back to blondes. Yeah, blondes, yeah. Yeah. So he puts Susan in the tree, and he fights the dinosaur and wins the fight by breaking the dinosaur's jaw, but as I mentioned before, it, just, it was supposed to bleed. They didn't make it bleed. It, it foamed bubbles. at the mouth. So I guess Gorosaurus has rabies. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> so he didn't die because Kong broke his jaw. He died because rabies. Yeah. And then... We have another little monster. Well, not little. We have a giant snake or a sea serpent or whatever, which is kind of like the original movie. It wasn't an actual serpent. It was uh, it was a long-necked dinosaur yeah. in it, but it tries to constrict Kong, and he fights that in the cave. So you have the same thing here, except it's an actual giant snake. Yes. But what I find interesting is it dawned on me that there are also several things that this movie anticipates that happen in later Kong films. In particular, with this giant snake, there's a giant snake... In the 76 remake. Okay. Which is the only other thing on Kong's island, apparently, because there are no dinosaurs. Just a giant snake. Just the giant snake, which is one of the things that makes the 76 movie a little lame, but we'll get into that in, the, in a future episode. I have to say, I got to give props to Kong. Like, he has really good rock-throwing abilities. Like, yes. he throws one rock and hits the snake on the head. I'm like, man, I wanted a cartoon roll. sound effect. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Blonk. Blonk. And then birds around the snake's head. and Oh, yeah, that would have been great. Yeah. That would have been great. And then Nelson is essentially Captain Anglehorn. Yeah. And Nomura is pretty much Jack. Yeah, and the, we've already said, the love, you know, the, Susan is Anne. The love thing's very weak. I mean, it's like, oh, they're in love. And like, okay, yeah, I, I, I guess I know that. But we've seen nothing. It's one of those, you know, you're being told and not shown. Yeah. I mean, there was more of like Piranha and trying to hit on... <laughs> Man, she she's like every five minutes, like I got a new outfit today. I mean, <laughs> she, in that scene, she is borderline Padme level of wardrobe hats, and she loves hats. Good hats. Uh, actually, all the women in this movie have a thing for hats because Susan has that really snazzy yeah. hat for her no, uniform. Good, the good hat, like I, th I really think that Piranha, it needs to be Piranha's hat shop and Doctor Who's hairdresser. He has some <laughs> nice hair, some nice full. I like it. It was yeah. good. Just like in the 33 film, we have Kong being captured and exploited. Yes. So Doctor Who is essentially 
Carl Denham. Again, yeah. Yep. And then at the end, as you have to do with a King Kong movie, tower. you got to climb a tower at the end. In this case, it's Tokyo Tower, not the Empire yep. State Building. And a, and a beauty kills the beast because Madame Prana kills Mechanicong. Mechanicong. Yeah, Mechanicong. Yeah, she shorts out his controls and then so he can't move anymore and he falls from the tower. And Kong's like, oh, uh, I, I win. <laughs> Fake air proverb comes true. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, but Doctor Who, it's funny. <laughs> Every source I looked at uh, spelled his name W H O, which is really like weird. the British television which show. Is weird. But the subtitles for the movie that we watched tonight spelled it H U U, yeah. like a Chinese name, because I think the implication is that Doctor Who is supposed to be Chinese. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting if you know Japan's history with China, but moving on. At the same time, I mean, we, we made the joke earlier about him having the same name as the British hero, yeah. but he looks suspiciously like John Pertwee, mm-hmm. who played the doctor on Doctor Who after the, in, you know, in the, about, I think starting in the late 60s and into the early to mid 70s. But this movie predates that mm-hmm. by several years. Like I said, he looks a lot like John Pertwee, dresses a bit like John Pertwee, because John Pertwee's doctor wore a cape. Yes, yes, he did. Yet, at the same time, the way his... His persona is much more like His persona is more like the master who first appeared on Doctor Who during John Pertwee's time as the doctor, and this movie still predates that. So it's insane. So it's almost like the people working on Doctor Who saw this movie and it inspired them with their casting and their writing later. It's I have no idea if that's true. It is pure conjecture on my part, but I love the idea. And it was funny. You made uh, you made a joke about how you thought Peter Cushing, if there was an American version of this, Peter Cushing could have been Doctor Who. I said, wait a minute. He was the <laughs> Doctor Who because there were two movies but, made yeah, about somehow. this time where Peter Cushing was the doctor. So he's an unofficial doctor because yep. those are out of canon with the show. Yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. This movie is this weird nexus of stuff. Of just weird sci-fi spy kaiju stuff. Yeah, it's just a nice, it's a nice mixture. It's not like over, it's not, it doesn't mix too much stuff. Like it's just right balance of like, hey, here's some kaiju stuff. Here's some spy stuff. It's not cramming stuff in there. No, but it, it it you know you got hypnotism, but you don't have like a ten million you know weird things. But it was fun. Yeah. You think this would have worked as a plot for an episode of Doctor Who? I think Jimmy might be on to something. I think, yeah. Why has there not been a King Kong Doctor Who? They've had monsters on Doctor Who. No, there's some giant monsters. And probably mechanical monsters. Oh, plenty of yeah. those. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. They're all all the mechanical monsters. So yeah, I I could do I could see that. I'm just going to say this since we're on the subject of Mechanicong. Mm-hmm. Mechanicong, as all of the Godzilla fans know, Mechanicong is the inspiration for Mechagodzilla. He was the direct stated inspiration because Toho, in 1974, they wanted to make a 20th anniversary film for Godzilla. And someone said, well, we're running out of money. So what can we do? And then Terry Oshinakuno, who was the special effects director at the time, said, you know what would be cool, but also a little bit cheaper? What's that? Well, you remember that robot gorilla? The the Mechanicong? Oh, yeah. Why don't we do that for Godzilla? Nice. <laughs> Except Mechagodzilla was a lot more of a threat. He was a walking arsenal. 
what Mechanicong is pretty much limited to Play his his uh his Batman utility belt with the grenades that yeah, he never which, uses again. Yeah. And his little flashing disco ball pyramid on his head that gets taken out because Nomura's a sharpshooter unlike yes. all the bad guys in this movie who went to stormtrooper school. He rolled a 20. Yeah. <laughs> and then you know and he has high beams. Yep. The the best superpower that Mechanicong has at his disposal is you know blinding you with his high beams. High beams, yeah. Yeah. I mean it works. I so so guess. apparently he thinks he can kill Kong like most people do accidentally with deer. You know, okay, not to get too explaining things. But I suppose giving him high beams makes sense he's supposed to be basically a digging robot. <laughs> that actually makes sense. It does make sense. Now, why you make a gorilla into a digging robot, I don't know. There's other <laughs> animals that would try first, but we dig, 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 dig. <laughs> So. Diggy, diggy hole, diggy, diggy hole. I hope, uh, I'm sure most of you will get that. I hope you get that. Maybe I'll have Jimmy put a, no, uh, a link to that on YouTube. It's a, it's a YouTube video with these Tolkien-esque dwarves <laughs> making up a song about how they dig in mines. Yeah. It's actually quite hilarious. <laughs> One more thing about Madame Piranha. It's interesting that we they never tell us what country she's from. And we were actually theorizing a little bit based on some of the of the dialogue. But then they basically said, she said later on, like, you don't even know my nation. Yeah. So we figured it must just be the made-up nation. But it was interesting to me. They kept kind of throwing out all these possible answers. Yeah. And you feel like there should be an answer, but then it kind of... Yeah, like, I think oh, they... No. The, the only thing that I think we can know for sure is that it's apparently an Asian nation. Yes. They said there's wrong. a line related to that in here. I read one essay that insisted that she was supposed to be an implied communist Chinese. And I'm like, they said she's not Chinese. Unless there's lies, but this is not, this seems a very straightforward. Yeah. And all she says is, you know, you don't even know my nation's name and it's not a very nice country and all that. Up until then, we actually were kind of thinking, well, maybe she's North Korea. Yeah. Which made a weird amount of sense until she says, you don't know my country's name. And then we thought, well, maybe it's Taiwan because, you know, because Taiwan was under martial law at the time that this movie was made. And that's a whole to do right there that, you know, that's a can of worms I'm not willing to open at this point. And yet, and I'm leaning towards personally from the context of the movie, at least that is just sort of unexplained. Yeah. In but, a different movie, I might pull, push it more, but I'm not sure I can push it. Yeah, well, and I think by leaving it ambiguous like that, but only really confirming that it's supposed to be a communist Asian yeah. nation, I think is what we're supposed to take on. You know, mm-hmm. And a nation that is seeking to create a nuclear arsenal and make itself a player Yes. on the international stage. I mean, like I said, that, that could be referring back to a lot of things. I don't think it would, would have been necessarily the Chinese. They had gone nuclear well before this. The idea of it being North Korea would have been fascinating because obviously that was something they were always trying to do. Mm-hmm. But what it really boils down to is that she comes from some podunk communist Asian nation that is trying to assert itself. Yeah. And Doctor Who is offering that to them. Why not? Mm-hmm. He just wants money. And this is apparently the easiest way to do it. Yes. <laughs> Although I what find... we'll do tonight, Brain, try to take over the world. <laughs> or... Or rather, sell it lots of cool stuff. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Although it's interesting. One of the essays I I read pointed this out. In a very Honda-esque fashion, we have this Element X, the MacGuffin, of our movie. Because we never really see... We never see the stuff. It glows. It glows. It might have been the Upside Down. I don't know. But (laughs) the references just keep coming. (laughs) But in a very Honda-esque fashion, this stuff that is essentially super plutonium is acquired by nobody. 
Yeah, I mean, and it's true because basically no one gets it. Everyone has their, I mean, the good guys get their happy ending and then there's none of the bad guys get anything. I mean, Madame Prana dies redeemed. I mm-hmm. guess you want to put it that way, but she still dies. And yeah. then and then Doctor Who suffers a horrible death. <laughs> We're gonna keep going back to that, aren't we? It's it's a very happy episode a, of ha- the Monster Island Film Ball today. <laughs> What's also interesting is in this one, in that Kong suit, which looks terrible when it's wet. I just yeah. want to throw that out there. And interestingly, <laughs> it was covered in dog fur. And I can confirm, I've been on the island long enough to tell you that Kong does smell like a wet dog when he's when he gets wet. Speaking of which on this island, is McCann and Kong here or did it not get reconstructed? Uh, we haven't put him back together yet. Oh, so it's like you need all the king's man and all the king's horses. Yeah, okay. yeah. We haven't put Mechanicum together again. Yeah, okay. not quite yet. Someday, right? Someday, or is that a good someday? Idea? I'm, we're not sure. I guess actually. if you want to go digging for something, <laughs> putting him back together is one of your side projects when you're off work. He has a lot of side projects. Yes, he does, and I'm a little concerned about some of them. I don't know what you use him for, except for walking slowly or digging things, or well, or lighting up dark tunnels. Yeah, well, you know, some of the monsters need new caves to live in. Oh, okay. So, yeah, you know, okay. You know, we we might have a we might have a use for him. Okay. But well, like I said, I, I don't want to come back though. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe he, we might use him to build an, a second resort, you know, oh, to go okay. with the one that we already have here. That yeah, I mean, sense. that's where I'm putting you up for the night. Okay. <laughs> yeah, That'll work. Okay. Sounds good. Part of the the golden ticket. Yeah, the golden ticket's pretty nice. Yeah, but anyway, so we have Haruo Nakajima, who famously played Godzilla for 18 years and 12 movies. Nice. And now he's Kong. And I think it's fascinating that, you know, he's the one guy who got to play the two biggest, literally biggest monsters ever in cinema. I mean, who can say that they've done that? That's cool. You know, that is super cool when you stop and think about it. And he took the role very seriously. But Nakajima always took his suit acting very seriously. He studied animals at zoos when he was Godzilla ten, you know, in 1954. And I read that he went and studied the movements of animals for this movie, specifically gorillas. He actually watched how real gorillas work and how they moved and all that. And even was quoted as saying that when you put that suit on, it forces you to have to move differently. Hmm. You can't move like a normal person. Yeah. You know, so it, in a way, the costume was forcing its him into character. And generally, I haven't watched a lot of these kaiju movies, but generally, like, all the special effects were effective. I think the best special effects sequence, well, there's two that I think are probably the most effective. One is the scene on Mondo Island when Kong is captured with all the helicopters. Yes. There's some really nice cinematography with really that, nice some really cool shots. Mm-hmm. And the movie anticipates more Kong because... Kong uproots a tree and throws it at the helicopters. Not as accurate a throw as the rocks. It is a tree. But, you know, he's groggy at that point yeah. because, oh, another parallel to the original film. Gas bombs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, but in Kong Skull Island, his introduction in that movie is throwing a tree at a helicopter. Okay. And then the other one I really enjoyed is the climax. The climax is very, I mean. The, the, with, the, with that replica of Tokyo Tower. It is nice. fantastic. It is very nice. And I will tell you, I want more kaiju film endings to be monsters fighting on top of buildings. Because that would be really exciting. Not now they go climb that tower in Dubai and Oh yeah. Because that's now the tallest building in the world. I don't know how you get them there. (laughs) They'll come up with some reason. I mean we'll we'll just make a movie that follows the same logic that this one does, and they'll just you know we'll find some cockamamie reason to get them there. Yeah. 
One thing I want to mention that this, this is kind of interesting. This was made in the final year of Toho owning the license for King Kong, which they had purchased from RKO for $220,000. Nice. But they got to use Kong for five years. Unfortunately, they only made two movies in the course of those five years, and this was one of them. Destroy All Monsters was made in 1968, mm. and they wanted to have Kong in it. But the license expired, and they didn't renew it. And it makes me sad because, like, we almost had King Kong in Destroy All Monsters. He would have been fighting Ghidorah. That would have been awesome. It would have been amazing. So I like to think that somewhere out in the multiverse, there is a universe where King Kong is in Destroy All Monsters. Nice. Now, I've realized we've talked about a lot of the characters except for Susan. Susan, yeah, which is, she was not, she was a decent character. Yeah. She was a forerunner to a lot of the love interest for Kong that we'll see later because in both the 76 remake and the Peter Jackson version, the girls who catch Kong's eye are sympathetic toward him. Mm -hmm. So she was not Anne from no. the original movie who was terrified of Kong the entire time. No, she's like, I'll go up there and talk to him. I'm going to go up there and talk to him. Which, unfortunately, I did read an essay. It's the same guy I had mentioned before who was you know, talking about... Uh, I mentioned this in the previous episode with Tim. Mm -hmm. This guy who was arguing that all of the movies that came after the original infantilized Kong. Oh. And he indicts this movie by saying that his girlfriend in this movie is just a, is a cajoling girlfriend. <laughs> as opposed to Kong being this strong masculine presence who just takes the woman and yeah. all of this stuff and you know and she's a modern woman and a controlling girlfriend and just blah 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 and i'm just like oh my gosh dude knock it off <laughs> so at the end she's like go destroy that ship yeah and like then she he should come back like okay no go rob a bank for me get me a danish <laughs> get me a danish <laughs> go take over a small middle eastern country yes. for me I think it'd be a cool a whole a whole whole series of her just riding on his back saying, "Okay, do this now." It'd be awesome. That would she's be kind of on black, and she's like this kingdom of, and Kong's her. Kong is her enforcer. Oh yeah, it'd be great. I like this idea. I, Although apparently that's what the King Kong show kind of is. I've seen one clip of the King Kong show, which is where he's fighting Mechanic Kong. And yeah. Doctor Who is from the show. He looks nothing like this. He looks like a short mad scientist with a bulbous head. Okay. <laughs> Although he's Mechanic Kong's pilot, which is oh, nice. kind of interesting. And <laughs> that's kind of what happens in there. I, from what I can gather, the boy, there's a boy in that one who kind of tells Kong what to do, and he yeah. goes and does it, because that's what he does. He's coaching Kong from the side and telling him, he's like, go punch Mechanicong. And Kong keeps trying to do it, even though all he does is hurt his hand, because Mechanicong doesn't get phased by wow. any of his punches. Not like in this movie. Yeah, yeah the, the fighting's pretty, like, just smacked each other down. You know, that dinosaur just got pummeled to pieces. Yeah. Now, I bring up Susan, because what's interesting is that actress, her name is Linda Jo Miller. She was 19 when she was in this movie. And I have to bring this up because, interestingly, while I was doing research on this, I went on one of the Kaiju fan Facebook groups that I'm in, and it's just, I asked a question as part of my research, and then someone tagged her. She is on Facebook. Nice. And she was in this group and said, hey, what do you remember about this? And then she piped into the conversation. I'm like... <gasps> Someone from these movies is, is in the Facebook group with us. Oh, my gosh. I've kind of freaked out a yeah. little bit there. So, Linda, if you're listening to this, this is for you. 
I'm making sure to mention that not only were you in this movie, but I feel really sorry for you because you didn't get to redub yourself. Because if you watch the dub version of this movie, Rhodes Reason, the you know square-jawed hero in this, he got to redub himself with the lines that he said on set because they dub all the Americans in Japanese. They did not let Linda do it because she was living in Japan as a military brat. She was a military brat. She was working as a model. And Arthur Rankin, I guess, saw a picture of her, and he said, get her for this movie, even though she had no acting experience. So she got a lot of coaching from Akira Takarada. And I think Rhodes Reason as well. But because she was just a model and not a member of the Screen Actors Guild, she didn't get to redub herself for the, mm. for the English version. Except, for she says, for the scenes where she's screaming. That's actually her screaming. Everything else is some other actress. And I've looked up the, uh, the dub actress's name. It's escaping me right now. But she makes Susan sound like a cartoon character. Yeah, it kind of does. <laughs> it's... It's a little sad. Although, speaking of hilarious, of cartoon characters, <laughs> Paul Freeze does Doctor Who in the dub version. And I'm like, why does his voice sound familiar? And I looked it up. He is Boris from Rocky and Bullwinkle, Moose and Squirrel. Moose and Squirrel. <laughs> which, which fits pretty darn well, actually. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. Also, one other thing we mentioned, this was the last film that Tonda collaborated on oh, yeah. with his cinematographer. It was also... This was also the last time that Honda directly collaborated with Eiji Tsuburaya. Uh, Tsuburaya died three years later, and his health began to deteriorate pretty quickly after this. So he wasn't as able to be involved yeah. with uh, the films after this. We've made jokes already about this being a G-rated movie for the kids, but th- that was the intended audience for mm-hmm. this. It was, you know, It's a cartoon adaptation, a loose adaptation. So it very much feels like a children's movie, mm-hmm. you know, that moves along at this breakneck pace. It only explains enough about itself, it has enough logic to keep going, but if it stops, it has to think about its logic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like it has to keep moving so it doesn't keep have moving. to think. Yeah. <laughs> because if it thinks too long, it, it'll collapse under its own we'll, illogic. We'll just escape the jail and go to Madame Piranha's suite yeah. in Doctor Who's base. Yeah. And <laughs> hang out here until he comes back and captures us. <laughs> and they never stay in the jail cell for more than three minutes (laughs) so i can't see kids being all that interested with madam piranha trying to like seduce uh, i know i actually found a very interesting quotation it was one of the contemporary reviews at the time that was saying that oh this is a kids movie but we have the sexuality of madam piranha must be there for the dads (laughs) oh boy (laughs) which i could see but What's really sad is that there were people, including Honda and some of his crew members, that were frustrated by this point because they were wanting to make more serious movies mm-hmm. geared at adults. It's like, why can't we make stuff like this for adults? And they were just being told all the time, kids are the audience for these now. You have to make it for the kids. Mm. And speaking of this being a kid's movie and the contemporary reviews, oh goodness, I came across one that was just scathing. And honestly... This might be a good way to transition into our next segment. Oh my gosh. It sounds it almost sounds a little bit racist to be honest, but this is from Vincent Canby of the New York Times. Okay. 1968. He was quoted as saying, "The Japanese who show the greatest delicacy in arranging flowers and manufacturing transistor radios are all thumbs when it comes to making monster movies like King Kong Escapes." Wow. The Toho movie makers are quite good in building miniature sets, 
But much of the process photography, I feel like I need to start reading this in a really snooty voice. Like Anton Ego. Yeah. Yeah. Match the miniatures with the full-size shots is just bad. Really unforgivable, however, is what has been done to King Kong himself. The great dignified 80-foot ape of the 1933 Hollywood classic has been turned into a spineless, groveling Uncle Tom in the community of prehistoric beasts. What? (laughs) I look at that and I think, did we see the same movie? (laughs) That is mean. People really want, I mean, it sounds like from this and from the other quotes you had that people really wanted the old bestial Kong back. And this was just a different... I mean, this happens every time you do sequels. You know, people... Things will change and people will want the old version. Yeah. I mean, not always, but it happens more often than not. It just... It bothers me to hear stuff like this. It's just people seem to have a very fixed, finite idea of what Kong should be. I don't understand why Kong has to stay in a certain mold, and yet Godzilla is allowed to evolve and mean different things. Well, didn't people complain about Godzilla evolving too? It depends on who you talk to, but generally speaking, people, uh, at least in my experience, the fandom seems pretty happy with the different things. I mean, well, no, what I'm saying is that this guy's contemporary. Did contemporary people not like how Godzilla was changing when it was happening? Looking back, people are like, oh, I like the whole range of stuff. Yeah. Again, I think it would depend on who you're talking to. Honda certainly didn't like the the turn that Godzilla eventually took becoming Mm -hmm. a hero. But he also, I don't think, was too fond of the idea of there being sequels to the original Godzilla, period. And neither was Jun Fukuda, who directed five of the classic Godzilla films. Okay. He was second only to Honda, because Honda, I believe, if I remember correctly, he directed eight. Okay. You know, and we're talking eight out of the 15, and he did five out of the 15. And they both didn't think there should have been sequels. You know, yeah. which, you know, Godzilla was just making too much money, so I can understand that. But Godzilla had to evolve in order for them to keep making movies. You can't just make the 1954 film all the time. And that's the thing that bugs me a little bit about King Kong. No offense, big guy. <laughs> if yeah. Jimmy is being crazy and broadcasting this out to yeah. them again, you're going to try to filter it through the orca this time? Still haven't fixed it, have you? Anyway, it just seems like Kong keeps getting put into the same mold. Most of the movies that Kong is in is just recycling the same plot, or a lot of the same plot elements. The, I mean, three of them are essentially remakes. And this is one where it actually tries to branch out and do something different with Kong. It's very science fictional. It's very pulpy. It's cartoony. Kong is allowed to be more comical. There's still a lot of what makes Kong Kong in this. Heck, maybe even... Well, maybe not more so than in King Kong versus Godzilla. He's more bestial in King Kong versus Godzilla, a little less sympathetic, but he only really gets infatuated with a woman for maybe 10 minutes at the most. The whole movie is not about that. Well, and, and if this isn't loosely inspired by the cartoon series, the cartoon series is all about a boy basically controlling Kong, so you're not going to... I mean, you've already made that change in the source yeah, Well, material. and more like they're best friends. I okay, guess, but maybe, I mean, yeah. still, there's a camaraderie that is yeah. not present in old Kong. Yeah. But so, it's already there from the source material. Yeah. But I think the the big problem is that, well, it's not a problem. It's a problem and a strength at the same time. It's just that that first movie, that first story with Kong is just so perfect. Yes. That trying to do anything else, I think, is really difficult. It, it's just it's, and anything else is almost a step down no matter what you do. Yeah. Well, which some people would say the same thing about Godzilla films. Mm-hmm. 
But I do think the Godzilla films have had a slightly better track record with doing different things. I mean, even when they got back to doing dark movies again, they were still putting very interesting spins on it. You look at Godzilla 1954, and then you look at Return of Godzilla from 1984, and they are in a lot of ways the same movie, but they contemporize it. Mm -hmm. It's steeped heavily in Cold War tensions and all of that. It was what makes the movie more distinctive. Shin Godzilla follows a lot of the same ideas and style as well, but it's also very different. They contemporize it, and they also make it, make it different by making it a satire, a political mm-hmm. satire, which you wouldn't necessarily pick up on unless you were up on your Japanese politics. Yeah. But that's beside the point. Go listen to the KVR episode on that, and you'll know all, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. But Kong doesn't seem to be given the same amount of latitude, and I think he should because I don't think this is an infantilized version of Kong. I but I also don't tend to read. I guess for lack of a better way to put it, gender politics into any of this. Yeah, This is just a fun story, and I like that it's different, where you have a, a sympathetic love interest, and Kong is less savage. I don't think he is completely without savagery. I mean, no. you know, look at poor Gorosaurus. Yeah. <laughs> but he should be allowed to change and evolve. But again, try following up that original film. Mm-hmm. Like you said, everything else other than that is going to be seen as a step down. Whether it is or not, yeah. And also cartoon logic. (laughs) Yes. All right. With that, let's move on to the toku topic. With this episode, I'm anticipating the toku topic to play out much like it did between myself and Tim. You know, Tim, your co-host on Derailed Trains of Thought, which I should have mentioned at the beginning. You know, yes. you know, your I, podcast. I probably should too. See, yeah. if Tim was here, he'd be like, why didn't you name drop us? <laughs> but so. yes, Derailed Trains of Thought, wonderful podcast. Go listen to it. It's good stuff. Yes. So that was very much a philosophical conversation between myself and Tim. And I think today it will be similar. What I w- wanted to do with doing all this research on this film and on a lot of Toho's films from the 60s in particular, I started to notice what I thought were parallels between the American and Japanese cast and crew and executives, producers, and all that who were working on five films that Toho made with Americans, just to rattle them all off for you quickly, would be Frankenstein Conquers the World, Invasion of Astro Monster or Monster Zero, War of the Gargantuas, this film, and then finally Latitude Zero. Is that the order they were made? Pretty close. Okay. Yeah. And I started to, you know, hearing about all the things that were going on behind the scenes with these films, I started thinking, this sounds eerily similar to Japanese and American relations, you know, in the international sphere. Mm-hmm. So it's like these were almost microcosms of what was going on. So all the big things, you know, you're seeing happening just between individuals. And I, that was something I thought it would be interesting to talk about those happenings in this larger context. So what were some of the, what some of the interactions going on between... The Japanese and American crew. Well, we'll start with King Kong Escapes, okay. you know, since we're you know, talking about this film. There was a fair amount of foreign interference going on. Uh, Arthur Rankin thought Honda and his crew would make the movie sillier than it already was. So he sent Rhodes Reason to keep an eye on things. Mm-hmm. Mm. He asked for sets to be redressed. 
Because he thought the sets looked like they were at garage sales. That's where all the props came from. Oh, weird. And he had he reworked his dialogue on the fly. I even found that out from Linda Miller in the on the Facebook group that he would rewrite his own dialogue huh. you know, on the fly while they were working on it. And he thought his his makeup thought his makeup made him look like a geisha girl. Huh. I didn't come all that way. Well, yeah. And he saw the Jap- Japanese filmmaking as primitive. He seriously called Honda a hack. And he even flat out said that the the only real reason he took the job is because he wanted to take a trip to Japan. That's nice. And he was quoted as saying that Honda would direct me in strange and exotic ways only the Japanese would appreciate and that there was nothing special about him. Unfortunately, this sounds a little bit like ignorant American goes abroad. Yeah. It, I don't know if that's true, but I mean, you could certainly read it that way. Yeah. He also said, I had to work to underplay, to bring the film some credibility. Weirdly I mean, enough. I mean, granted, it was a, it's a, it's a silly film. Yeah, it is. But weirdly enough, Honda was unfazed by his condescension. And according to some of Honda's cohorts, Reason and Honda got along pretty well. His assistant director thought it was because they had similar personalities, oh. which I'm like, okay. Reason was brusque, but it made him confident. And, and so because of that, he earned Honda's trust. Okay. And Arthur Rankin was, not only was he having Reason keep an eye on things for him, but Rankin was observing things on behalf of RKO. So there's you know, a couple layers of supervision going yeah. on here because ultimately RKO is the one, you know, they're the parent of King Kong. You know, they're the, the you know, the true owners yeah. of King Kong. I mean, and, and certainly even all other things, even two different nations have two different ways of filming and doing things. And you're only working with a interesting script, which I don't know where it came from originally, which side. I've gotten a couple different. I'm a little confused on that myself because it's, I thought it was Kimura. Almost every source I looked at credits it only to Kimura, Takeshi Kimura, which is why it feels, the movie feels uneven. It was something we didn't bring up in the previous section. It feels a little tonally uneven because Kimura loved writing dark stuff like Matango. But this movie is incredibly silly. So I feel like that's why the material is incredibly silly, but everything's being played straight and why there's gruesome deaths and things like that in it because it's this weird mishmash of sensibilities, which hurts the movie, I think, a little bit because this is really not... This really should have gone to Sekizawa. Yeah. Originally, Sekizawa had written a film adaptation of this, but it got turned into a Godzilla movie because... Rankin Bass didn't like it. <laughs> okay, fun. Yeah. So what was that sort of like, I guess, Americans looking down on the Japanese? Was that normal for these other productions? Yeah, there was some of that on a couple of the other films. Most notably, War of the Gargantuas and definitely Latitude Zero. Mm. Oh, my gosh. It was <laughs> bad on Latitude Zero. Oh, man. And I'll probably be expanding on a lot of this stuff when I get to my episodes on that. But... The one that I th- that for me is the most difficult to stomach, other than you know hearing some of the stuff that Rhodes Reason was saying, was Russ Tamblin on War of the Gargantuas. I have heard people try to, I've heard one person, I should say, try to defend Russ Tamblin, and he fails miserably at trying to defend this guy. He was a jerk. Nobody on the set of War of the Gargantuas liked him, but he went there. He was this American. It's like I was in West Side Story. I'm too good for this monster movie. That was pretty much the ad. That's the impression I get because. So, so you're saying that superhero movies are not real movies? Yeah, apparently. Yeah, just like Scorsese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not real cinema. So Honda frequently clashed with Tamblin. Uh, he would do the opposite of what Honda would tell him to do as the director. He's the freaking director, and he wouldn't. He would just do the opposite of what he would tell him. 
Seiji Tani, who was the assistant director, I mentioned him uh, without his name earlier, he called him a hoodlum-turned-actor and an a-hole. Wow. And a punk. This sounds like like good working conditions. Yeah. He reportedly would improvise lines about bad LSD trips. I mean, you've seen more of the Gargantuas, so I mean, kind of, yeah. Ago, but you, you're at least kind of familiar with what I'm talking about here. He was quoted as saying, "There was one interpreter that spoke English, and he interpreted between myself and Honda, and myself and the actors. Lucky for me, they didn't know what I was saying half the time, so I changed all my lines. My lines were so bad in the original script, I changed them all. Fun." And if you watch the movie, he has this very disinterested, flat performance the entire time. I'm like, what is your deal, dude? I mean, say what you want about Nick Adams. We'll talk a little bit about Nick Adams. Maybe Russ Tamlin's a better actor than Nick Adams, but when I watch Nick Adams in any of these movies, he's clearly passionate about what he's doing and enjoying himself. This guy thought he was too good for it. Mm. I mean, yeah, I get it. You were in one of the best movies ever made. And I love West Side Story. It's one of my favorite movie musicals. But what the heck, man? <laughs> This is your job. Do your job. Yeah. And he caused a lot of problems on set. He'd wander off <laughs> to a dangerous cliff and climb it and then go back to his hotel and never, never socialize with anybody. <laughs> he did say one sort of nice thing about Honda, which was, I liked working with him because he didn't give me much direction. The best directors I worked with gave me little direction. I'm going to go on a limb and say that that was Honda's quiet little way of saying he doesn't want to deal with your crap. <laughs> But as bad as that was, Latitude Zero was even worse. But wait, there's more. Yeah. 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 That one was just, oh my gosh. I, again, I'll expand on this more when I get to that episode. But to suffice it to say, you had this American writer who wrote a radio serial in the 40s called Latitude Zero. Mm-hmm. Wanted to make a movie out of it. And it tried to make it into a television show before this. That didn't work. And then got Toho to agree to help make the movie with them. And there was another studio that they were working with called ambassador productions and they were supposed to split the cost of the movie and all of that then what happened was there was a producer from ambassador productions who would try to work on the failed tv version and he was just trying to micromanage everything on set he would patrol the sets and he would make frequent complaints and demands and criticisms oh does this sound a little familiar And then we'll make criticisms of Japanese filmmaking due to his concerns of how the film would be received in the U.S. And the Japanese crew disliked him so much. There was a caveman henchman in that movie that ended up not getting in the movie, but they nicknamed him Warren. Nice. And I think there was actually a scene where they they were supposed to drop him into a a vat of burning acid or lava or something like that. So the Japanese crew hated him so much, they had to use that for their catharsis. Nice. (laughs) And he didn't understand. Since he came from a TV background, he tried to dictate to Honda how to shoot it using multiple cameras and all of that. And he's like, but that's not how we do things. And then he just did a complete 180 when he realized, oh, these people aren't incompetent. Uh, But the biggest thing that happened was he didn't mention that his production studio was on the verge of bankruptcy when they were making this. So his his studio went under, and then Toho ended up having to foot the bill for the rest of the movie's production. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And Honda mentioned later they felt like he had been tricked. Yeah, well, yeah, you, you would feel that way. Yeah, what's really weird is while this was going on, this was so bad that one of the... Joseph Cotton, one of the actors, the American actors on Latitude Zero, claims he heard people talking about Harakiri Mm. while this was going on. And I'm thinking, I think that's the ugly American talking there. (laughs) Yeah. 
or you're just telling a funny story because I'm yeah. pretty sure that probably wasn't going on. <laughs> if that was the case, I would have been hearing about Toho suicides or something because yeah. Toho had other failed films. But yeah. <laughs> but Tomoyuki Tanaka, the producer, big producer at Toho, when commenting about Latitude Zero's poor performance, he said, it was a fun story, but it turned out boring. Honda couldn't get a hold of how to use CinemaScope properly. It was one of his difficulties. That was a legitimate yeah. problem on the film. And the project only showed how difficult it was to make a co-production with another country. Which seems, these these examples seem to show that. Yeah. You said, like, Nick Adams really liked it, but generally... Oh, yeah. yeah. Nick Adams had nothing but the utmost respect for, for Honda. In fact, Nick Adams even offered to host Honda's son, Ryuji, in a post-college homestay program. Nice. Unfortunately, Nick Adams died before that could happen. And Honda loved him so much, he invited him to his house, and they had dinner nice. together with his family. But the production company certainly had trouble interacting properly. Yeah. I mean, not, I mean to be fair, American production companies have trouble interacting with each other. Yeah. I mean, like, who owns Spider-Man kind of thing. <laughs> you mean? Yeah, that's... That's complicated. So, so I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, I remember that that big tug of war going on between Disney and Sony, and so I suppose to be fair, even same cultures can have very vastly different understandings of properties, and then when you yeah. throw two different cultures together, but yeah. then again, American and Japan had a growing relationship at this point, and oh, your team Disney with the Spider Man thing, oh, it's just it's just because they have Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, I know how you like feel that. about Star Wars. He's jealous. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, some of the research I was doing, and I'm not an expert on Japanese-American international relations. Yeah. Although I'm, I'm sure my one. old podcast gave you yeah, a, a yeah, nice I learned, crash I course more there that. than yeah. anywhere. No, but I mean, obviously we have a complicated relationship because they were enemies, and then we MacArthur went in there and... We did the whole occupation. The occupation, and, and, and we gave them a new constitution, constitution and, and all of that. It's fascinating looking at that portion of the history because we Americans were incredibly kind to them. We didn't turn them into some sort of American colony. No. We went in there to our enemies, and we essentially put helped them put their country back together, and then we left and said, okay, yeah. take care of yourselves. And, I mean, there were some practical applications for that. Japan was an incredible asset during the Korean War, well, and, that's and it was very good for the United States to have an ally during the Cold War in that region. Well, that's what's so interesting about the, you know, around this time is that you got the Cold War and Japan's the only democracy, Western friendly country over there. So America has to have this, has to make sure they keep a good relationship. And there's some notes I had found about the CIA trying to be like, you make sure we keep them on our side and doing all that sort of stuff. So there's this thing called the Yoshida Doctrine. Mm-hmm. Named um, after a one of the prime ministers. Prime ministers correct, yeah. right around when they signed for the... The security treaty? Yes, back in like in 59 or something like that. Oh, it's when it was renewed in 1960. Yes, when they renewed and they changed some of the terms and stuff uh-huh. like that, yeah. But that largely, and this doctrine that was coined after he went through all this, that Japan was going to work economically, try to not spend the money doing military stuff, let America take care of that, and really work on reestablishing being an economic powerhouse. Which and, is they were definitely doing at this yeah. point. You know, The 1960 is generally when... The Japanese economic miracle is said to have actually started. And a large part of why they were having to approach things militarily the way they were was because of Article 9 of the Japanese constitution where they essentially renounced war. And and they and it sounds like that Japan wanted to keep it that way. Like they didn't they weren't trying I mean, they'd become more pacifist from my understanding, anyways. From my understanding, America kind of did want to push the rearmament for the 
sake of the Cold War and the Korean War and stuff like that, and Japan resisted to a certain extent. Yes. Um, and I think this is wrapped in what people called it now, the Yoshida Doctrine, is you resist so that you have more, you can throw your effort into economics. Yes. And then they made a, they made a lot of money off the Korean War, uh, helping America, you know, yes. a lot of influx of stuff. So you have this interesting dynamics where America still views them as kind of their, not, not their pawn, but their, their, in, their favorite son. Their, yeah, their favorite son, their, their ally out there. It's still a very exotic place. It's the, you know it's not an equal yet in their mind, even though yeah. Japan's trying to establish themselves as equal in the world scene again. Trying to join the UN, trying to you know that the Olympics came when what was that nineteen sixty four? You know that was a big stepping stone for them, and so you have this. They're trying to go out in the world, and, and they're starting to export their culture. You know, they're starting people are starting to like kaiju movies and stuff like that. Yeah, anime, anime, and but America's doesn't quite from my understanding, view them quite as equal yet. They're an ally, they're a necessary thing, but they're still... They're still... They're a foreign thing. They're still... There's still some otherness. Yeah, otherness. And I think... To them. Even though they... The United States established them as a democracy. They radically changed the country. Yes. Making the emperor a figurehead and not their leader and and all of that sort of stuff. That's some of our confusion here is that they're both very similar and... Very different for America. Yes. And the Americans, oh, it's the exact, there's the sushi and the the geisha and, you know, all this yeah. stuff that comes out that the Americans view, but they're also a Western ally. So we got this, don't know how to understand them, I think, for the common American. Yeah. And I do think that there's some of that otherness and maybe even some residual feelings from the war, I do think played into some of the things that, you know, like these film yeah. critics and all of that, and some of these actors and some of these producers and all that are still thinking of Japan in that way. I mean, one of them had to be shocked into believing, oh my gosh, you people aren't incompetent. Well, and, that, and that's, know. you know, the, sometimes there's just a sort of like, we people always think their culture knows best anyways. Yeah. But, uh, so it's a little foreign, silly. Well, and, and it's interesting too, because even Japanese exports, you know, before the war weren't, primitive yeah you know and then made in japan meant something very different yes about 20 years later yes and and that's the thing that i think you you intellectually know but you when you get there you're still thinking all oh, this old japan samurais and yeah whatever yeah and there's they're very there's, modernized and they're and they modernize in ways faster you know it was interesting there's a there's this you know work method called gaishan which uh, sounds like the Americans helped introduce back during the, um, the occupation. occupation. And then they just took it and ran with it. And yes. it just made a, they took stuff and made it, adapted it to their style of economy and, and culture fabulously. And yeah. we didn't know how to understand that, I think. Yeah. Well, probably. what is it? It basically is a continuously improving stuff. Basically, you just, you, everyone's in charge of pointing out a problem and reporting and figuring out solutions. It's sort of like, it's not a top down method as much as like, Everyone's in this together, is my ah, understanding. Which is a very Japanese mm-hmm. thing. Japanese culture, well, a lot of Asian cultures in general are very communal in nature. So, like, example, whereas Americans are individualistic. Like, here's an example like to- Toyota's production line can be stopped at any time by anyone. It's abnormality, and everyone is tasked to solve the issue as soon as possible. You plan it, you do, you check, you just, it's just this rapid, you find a problem, you f- everyone works together and fix it, and you just keep moving forward. And it's a probably a different mentality than. Americans had necessarily at that point in some of their industries. Yeah, well, if what you're talking about, the how it's not top-down, mm-hmm. it's that everyone's in this together. It's because, like I said, you know, Japanese culture is very communal in nature, whereas Americans are individualistic, and I guess 
to a certain extent more hierarchical yeah, in a way, at but, least in terms of business. <laughs> but, but it's interesting then too because I was, I've never seen Torah, Torah, Torah. Mm-hmm. But, I, I need to see it. But it sounds like... Yes, I know you agree with me. But I think in his best conception, it really wanted to be a f- retelling of Pearl Harbor where no, there's no no one's the bad guy. So Shakespearean tragedy and Kurosawa is going to the Japanese version. Um, I think there were issues with it coming out as well as they wanted it to. Yeah. But, I, you know, so there was, by the 70s, this idea of this unified nature. And apparently, even right before this, they were trying that in some of these co-productions, but they were just having trouble yeah, there was just, there was just a lot of disagreement over how things needed to be done. This wasn't in my notes from what, I, uh, from what I can see, but one thing that was interesting going back to Frankenstein Conquers the World, Henry G. Saperstein, who had had an established relationship with Toho, then said, you know, let's make some movies together. And Frankenstein Conquers the World is the first one. He demanded a certain ending for Frankenstein Conquers the World, which was that he wanted Frankenstein to fight a giant octopus mm-hmm. because... He had seen the giant octopus scene in King Kong versus Godzilla, which was a real octopus. Okay. He was so impressed by it that he wanted them to do that again with this Frankenstein movie. Honda didn't necessarily want to, and but they went ahead and did it anyway, which required extra time and money. And, and then they so they made this ending and showed it to the guy, and he said, eh, it doesn't look good enough. And then he told them to take it out. And so now they're sitting there probably thinking, why did we bother? Yeah. <laughs> You know, that's the sort of things. And that probably would have happened in a lot of other productions, but there seems like there was a lot of producer oversight with these co-productions because the Americans were very concerned about how these movies were going to play to the American audiences. They have different standards about how things should look and how things should be done. And you got to understand, too, I guess, you know, after World War II, America became superpower. And so... I mean that certainly affects your view of how your of your place in the yeah. world. Yeah, and history I mean, is and, written by the victors. And, and uh, so I wonder, you know, as much as you know, Japan's relationship is changing with the world. America is changing with the world too, and it creates this sense of unf- the worst versions is a sense of arrogance. Now, this doesn't always happen that way, but it does. In probably in, in our relation with the world, that is how it comes off sometimes. Yeah, and maybe in these cases is like you're, you know, oh yeah, now you're coming out of your backwards sense, but we're America. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think there's a certain level, especially at this time. You yeah, know, we're talking about the the sixties. Yeah, you know, since the end of the war, there's seems to be a strong paternal mm-hmm. sense between the United States and Japan at this point, where I don't think it's that Americans. Hate Japan? No, I don't or, think they look down. I mean, on. there's probably worse some people who did, but as a whole, generally speaking, Americans liked Japan and liked the Japanese. Yeah. But there's that sense of we're dad. Yeah, we put you back together. We're overseeing you, and you're doing stuff for us. We have to keep you safe because you're not allowed to have an offensive military, which is still a controversy yeah. to this day. Mm-hmm. There are still debates going on about Article Nine in Japan because the whole world scene has completely changed and it made sense at the time. I will say immediately after world war two and for, you know, at least a a decade or two after that, it made sense. But given Japan's position now, they need to have a stronger military and and to take care of themselves. And And they want to, that's what, that's one of the big themes. 
one of these days I will screen Shin Godzilla for you yes. and you're going to see that in action because that's one of the big themes in Shin Godzilla. Japan wants to take care of itself. But Yoshida Doctor seems like it was a way of Japan rebuilding itself economically and really using that as a tool for being a, an important part of Western society. It, co- it connects itself to USB. They're the ones buying everything. A lot of the Asian nations aren't buying. They're more expensive stuff now. But the downside then is it does still leave that, well, America has to protect them. You know, in this middle Cold War era stuff, while it was probably very helpful for bringing Japan to where it is now, probably did also foster some of that paternal nature in the American view of it. Now, like today, like I found Americans love Japan now. Oh, yes. I mean, we have no quality, you know, it's... Things that like 84% of Japanese people feel close to the U.S. and 87% of Americans say they have a favorable view of Japan. I mean, it just, there is none of that at this point. In the no. 60s? No, no, this is that was Oh, today. okay. I mean, today now, it's, I think, whatever miscommunication there was in the 60s, 70s is gone. Yeah, well, and it wasn't an, e- an easy road. No. Though, because you had all of this going on, you know, like I said, probably residuals from the war and the, so that paternal nature, because that definitely seems reflected with some of these producers who were trying to, it's like, you have to make the movie a certain well, way, well, you then, know? And then we moved into protectionist phase where we're all threatened by Japanese cars yes. and stuff. Yeah, that was a big thing in the in the 80, late, oh. late 80s, early 90s. There were people who were terrified, more terrified of Japan than they were of the Soviet Union because they thought the Japanese were so powerful economically mm-hmm. that they were just going to come in and buy everything in buy the United States. And- yeah, and then ironically, the bubble burst and they, you know, they crashed economically and they haven't fully recovered ever since. They are no longer at the height that they were at with the economic miracle which is a tremendous irony. But they've continued to export their gross national cool. Mm -hmm. Anime is almost ubiquitous now. I mean, everyone knows Godzilla. Yeah, everyone knows Godzilla now. And even people who aren't the hardcore anime fans still know things like Studio Ghibli. Yeah. And Miyazaki. Mm -hmm. So Japan is so, like I said, is just ubiquitous now. That's unheard of. Mm -hmm. Really, it is. A lot of American pop culture gets shipped over there. Yeah. And they eat it up. Yeah. There's they love much, it. There's very much a two-way street at this point. I yeah. mean, it's an even two-way street as opposed to this. The co-productions here seem to be very, they're trying, but they can't quite yeah. figure out how to do it evenly. Yeah. I just find it so interesting, you know, especially looking at if you're comparing Nick Adams to Russ Tamblin and just their attitudes and with uh, where Nick Adams He's one of those Americans that you know, he loves the the Japanese, loves what they do, and had the utmost respect for Honda. And then Russ Tamblin just says, you know, screw you, I'm too good for this. Mm-hmm. I'll do what I want. And Honda being Honda takes it in stride. But I think eventually he just kind of just decided, you know what, you do what you want. And I think it very much depends on, you know, your attitude. Obviously, Nick Adams was more like, hey, yeah, I'll learn stuff and this is fun. And, you know, versus like, I know what, you know. You're not. I know uh, better. You're not um, Doctor Who being like, ha ha ha, I have spoiled everyone. And meanwhile, like, all your inventions fail, but you're still like, ha ha ha, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. And it was definitely much more, Nick Adams had it, was definitely much more in keeping with what Honda wanted to do. You'll see in a, you know, even some of these movies that I've mentioned, there are story elements that are reflecting this partnership, I guess you could say, between the United States and Japan, this favorite son sort of thing but honda wanted the treated them both as equals you know in invasion of astro monster monster zero the two main characters are nick adams who's an american astronaut mm-hmm. and akira takarada 
playing a Japanese astronaut. Yeah. They're best friends. Yeah. And they go on missions together. They banter together. They, you know, they, they've clearly known each other for a long time. And when they go to Planet X and they plant a flag there, which, interestingly, this was four years before the moon landing. Nice. They plant a flag there and it has three flags. It has Japan, the United States, and the UN. Yep. I love that. And nobody makes a big deal about it. That right there is, I think, in that microcosm is Honda's idealized relationship between the United States and Japan. They are equals and they are friends. Yep. And they are going off and accomplishing great things together. Mm -hmm. I agree. Well, I think that just about wraps things up here. Thank you once again, Nick, for joining me here. I, I know you're on your podcast. You're a little more used to talking about story and not history. Hey, it was fun. It was fun. To, actually, I really enjoyed doing the research and at least the time I had to do. And it, it was like, oh, this is interesting stuff. Like, I like history more and more now than I when I was a kid. I'm like, <laughs> now I find history pretty fascinating. Yeah, especially when you get to hang out in Monster Island's library to do yeah, it, right? And this is, and this is way more um, warm and sunny than it is back in Kendallville at the moment. Oh, yes. <laughs> you guys are in the, in, the, uh, in the middle of an early winter, practically. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> so, and again, not the safest place I've ever been for a podcast, but not the worst I've ever been. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> I've listened to every episode of your yeah, show. Some I do some know. Worse than others, yeah. <laughs> but is there anything you want to plug real quick before oh, we yeah. go on? So, yeah. yeah, I'm a co-host with Timothy Deal, who was on the last yeah. episode. Oh, no, two episodes ago. Yes. We do Derail Trains of Thought, uh, your premier podcast on storytelling. I uh, get on iTunes and Stitcher and I'll, and Spotify. And it's all about storytelling, and it's a lot of fun, and I think you should go listen if you have not. And um, we also do another podcast called The Weekly Hijack, where we just hijack some TV show we're watching, which we're just finishing up Babylon 5. Oh, yes. Which if you have not watched, you really need to watch, because this is a great science fiction show. Or even if you haven't watched it, you can listen to us talk about it. <laughs> so. I, I do both, actually. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I have seen the show, and I love listening to you. Uh, have to you your seen episodes. Crusade? We were just no, I have Crusade. not. Ah, I see, have not, but I did get that for you for, for and your I'm birthday very, a few I, years I'm ago. glad, because I now own almost every Babylon 5 thing except for Lost Tales. Well done. Yes. Well Anyways. done. Yeah. Just to let you know, listeners, my next episode will be a mini-analysis. It will be a mini-analysis of the infamously banned film Half Human. Interesting. So another Honda uh, classic. Except this is one that Toho likes to keep locked away in the vault and pretend it never happened. And you'll learn a little bit more about why in that episode. And then... Just to let everybody know, the schedule is going to get tweaked a little bit, but since the release date for Godzilla vs. Kong, which I intended to be the culmination of what I'm calling the Kong Quest, I should have brought this up at the beginning of the episode, I can't believe I got three movies deep on this coverage and I didn't bring this up on the air, but I'm trademarking it now, the Kong Quest. Spell with a K. Yes. K-W-E. <laughs> ST Quest, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. Something like that. So I'm going to be doubling up on the full-length film discussion episodes in both January and February to make sure that I get all of the movies covered before Godzilla vs. Kong, assuming it stays with that March release date. So next month for January, the next big film discussions will be the 1976 remake and wherein my co-host will be Ben Avery, author and podcaster and monster fan. Nice. Followed by its ill-advised sequel, <laughs> King Kong Lives, 
from 1986, I believe. Jimmy will probably correct me if I'm wrong, which will feature, once again, as I mentioned in the previous episode, John LeMay, who is one of the few fans of that movie I have I have met. <laughs> in fact, I think he's the only one. <laughs> so you have a lot of interesting things to look forward to, listeners. So, Jimmy, before we sign off, you got anything else? Nope, Jimmy, that's all I've got, too. Uh, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is TheMonsterIsla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcatchers. Please rate and review the podcast to help spread the word about the show. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas media production. Sayonara! few hours later. Hey, Jimmy, I just got Nick checked into the Monsterland Resort Hotel. Are you flying him back to Indiana in the SY3 tomorrow morning? Okay, good. Now I need to start ramping up for Godzilla and Kong's rematch in March, so... What do you mean, it won't happen? They're not talking to each other? Do the scientists know why? No, huh? Did Martha try to talk to him? They wouldn't listen to her either? Hmm. Maybe they need some counsel from Reverend Mafune. You know, the island's new chaplain? Maybe he could use the orca to... That won't work. Why? It's broken again? I thought you fixed it. Really? When Madison Russell and her dad were inspecting Monarch Outpost 83 here on the island, she smashed it with a hammer because she was angry you'd rebuilt it? <sighs> when do you think you'll have it fixed now? November 2020? We'll have to wait that long for Godzilla and Kong to settle their differences for their rematch? Oh, sheesh. Time to revamp the podcast schedule. Again.